0: Exponential Trust Times is the unique AI channel of trust that offers an innovative formula of mentoring at scale for youth people from all around the world. I'm Dr. Lobna Kari, Executive AI Strategy Growth Advisor and Digital Transformer for Fortune 500 and Cat 40 for more than two decades and the President of AI Exponential Thinker. is a unique fair opportunity to empower young generation about trust technology and AI opportunity. In the first chapter of this series, the AI deal of trust, we invite female leaders with exponential AI experience dedicated to one of the most crucial areas of AI ethics, AI responsible, and trust technology. Today, we fly from Seattle to California with our guest Geneviève Smith, Associate Director of the Center for Equity, Gender, and Leadership at the University of California, Berkeley. Hi, Genevieve.
1: Hello, nice to be here today. How are you? I'm doing great. I am staying cozy in my apartment while it's raining and a bit dreary outside,
0: but nice to be working from home today. (laughs) Welcome to the show, The Ideal of Trust. I'm very happy to have you today with us. Um, During these discussions, and we name it the authentic Discussion Generally, we will dig in many topics around trust technology, AI ethics, diversity, risk and threats around exponential technology, and other topics. But before that, we are really curious to learn more about your academic background and your journey to end up in this incredible mission uh, in Berkeley.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, the last decade of my career, I've really been focused on advancing equity, particularly related to gender. So, I actually started off with my career looking at how to make off-grid energy technologies, like cleaner cooking stoves, more gender inclusive. And so, I worked with the UN Foundation um, to design and adapt uh, cleaner burning those and other off-grid energy technologies and think about gender strategies to kind of scale these different types of technologies as well. Um, and in my work in that off-grid energy sector, I really recognized how much power that business had to impact gender equity and also saw at the same time increasing motivations and initiatives from larger multinational companies, you know, everything spanning from Nike and Gap, et cetera, um, to support women's empowerment, without necessarily knowing what that meant or how to do it well and authentically, so I went back to UC Berkeley for my master's to really delve into this uh, empowerment, equity, and the role of business. You know, what does it all mean? What are the interconnections? Um, I was fortunate to get a research position with the UN High Level Panel on Women's Economic Empowerment, where I really focused on. This was uh, post post Berkeley. I really focused on the, the role of business in advancing women's economic empowerment and also digital inclusion. And then I landed a position at the International Center for Research on Women where I advised Fortune 500 companies and led research on topics spanning inclusive technology, bias, positive masculinity to gender lens investing. So, you know, really the gamut of different types of gender equity and women's empowerment, um, and even equity inclusion more broadly, types of issues and topics. Um, So I did a lot of experimental design, data collection, and analysis in projects uh, largely across Africa and Asia. Um, And in my advisory work in particular, I recognized that there was this glaring gap that those that are in leadership and senior management positions at businesses often don't value or prioritize considerations related to equity and inclusion. And you know, I think that there's been this focus um, in educational institutions and in business schools where uh, the focus is on the shareholder value. So returns for shareholders, as opposed to thinking more broadly. And that's really changing um, to more thinking about kind of stakeholders more broadly. Um, but efforts around equity and inclusion have been this nice to have, you know, kind of cushy things on the side, um, and often have very little resources. Uh, maybe they're housed in the CSR or sustainability departments, you know, HR departments as well. But I was drawn back to Berkeley and Haas School of Business, which is where the center that I work with, Center for Equity, Gender and Leadership, or EGAL for short, mm-hmm. that's where we're housed in the, in the business school. And I was drawn back by partly one of the defining leadership principles of Haas, which is question the status quo. And I was excited to think about how can we educate future and business leaders to really understand equity and inclusion and to to really question the status quo around business and the role of capitalism. Um, And I'd also done some work with the founding and executive director of EGAL, Kelly McElhaney. So when the position at EGAL came up, I really couldn't pass it up.
0: Great. Right. So uh, uh, you, you start speaking a little bit about the current role that you are uh, occupying today, but let's go have more details about how, what what consists this role and and particularly what are the main uh, uh, projects if it's not confidential for sure that you can share with us in order to have a concrete example for the young people.
1: Yeah, absolutely so, as Associate Director at EGAL, I'm on the leadership team, and I direct and execute on strategy to advance equity and inclusion in business. And a primary mechanism for this is through what we call playbooks, which are resources that translate academic research and understanding into practitioner strategies and tools. So a lot of times, you know, there's this incredible research that academics write and develop and... Um, it can often sit within journals or you know in this kind of ivory tower of academia without necessarily being made actionable and being put into practice to see the change come to life. So that's really what our playbooks focus on is how can we take this rich body of knowledge and understanding and literature and make it action oriented and actually have practitioners put it into practice. And within this, a focus of mine is around mitigating bias in artificial intelligence and advancing inclusive AI. So we launched a playbook on this topic last summer and have done a series of different events, bringing together industry leaders, academics, and MBA students on the topic of inclusive AI and how business school education must adapt. So how do we prepare business school students? You know, thinking about equitable and inclusive AI isn't just Something for engineers or data scientists. It's for project managers. It's for business leaders. It's for people in the C suite. It really spans across the organization, and you know we can talk more about that. Um, but yeah. we wanted to make sure that that was really you know we're we wanting to make sure that's a conversation that's being had. Um, and relatedly, I can so one of I can't tell you about one of my other current primary projects, which is a partnership we're doing with Google. <clears throat> Excuse me.
0: To understand how
1: language—thank <laughs> you <laughs> in my throat. Um, to understand how language can drive equitable equity and inclusion. So specifically, the research looks at what does, how does it, um, how does the language that we use matter? How does what we say matter? How can this advance um, racial bias and inequities? But importantly, how can we actually advance racial equity and inclusion through the things we say and how we communicate? Um, so we're not just looking though at, at how humans communicate. We're also looking at how um, machines communicate in artificial intelligence. So, what does AI? Um, how does AI learn about human language and use human language? And where could issues come into play there? And what are opportunities? So we'll be developing a playbook on that topic as well, um, with actionable tools on language for advancing racial equity and inclusion. And um, and then just quickly, I'll mention some other things that I do in my position. So I also develop um, strategies and provide support to advance uh, understandings around equity and inclusion on campus among future generations of business leaders here at Haas. So I write and publish case studies, which are a primary teaching tool uh, that is, that's used in management education. And um, I'll be starting one soon on the topic of equitable and inclusive AI. And this is a way to really get that understanding into the classroom as well, right? Get people to talk about these issues within management education. Um, And most, the thing is that most existing published case studies that are used in business schools and case studies, so just to give you a sense of how valuable they are in management education programs, at Harvard, they estimate 80% of learning comes from case studies at the Harvard uh, Management Program. Mm -hmm. So MBA program. So that's a massive amount of the learning that takes place. But most of these case studies are primarily about white male protagonists and they neglect to address topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion that are absolutely critical for new business leaders to be able to navigate. And the thing is this lack of diversity in case studies, it perpetuates the status quo that traditional business leaders are both male and white. So we support professors to increase um, diverse the diversity, equity, inclusion in cases. Um, you know, we write cases to fill some of the different gaps that exist, and we also just uh, two days ago on the January 26th we launched a professor pledge, uh, which is mobilizing commitments from professors of business schools globally to advance case studies with diverse protagonists and cases on diversity, equity, inclusion topics. So. Those are just a, a smattering Hi. of
0: some things that we're working on. And, and we have exclusive news as well about this last project that you launched two days ago. My question is, as, you, as as I said every time in, in our uh, podcast and show, we have a lot of spontaneous questions. So one of the spontaneous questions that has come to my mind um, is um, how the students perceive uh, this uh, work and particularly this fight, because it's not only a work, but there's a fight in order to uh, uh, achieve this equity, right? Uh, in businesses, but on, not only in businesses, but also in society, right? What's their what their perception today? Yeah. Well, I will say that, you
1: know, Haas is a very, um, you know, it's, it's a leading business school and it has, the, the students are incredibly sharp, incredibly, um, proactive, many of them really care about you know, issues in our society more broadly and are also really committed to making sure that our environment at Haas is equitable and inclusive as well. Um, I think there is generally a sense that um, that things need to change and that, you know, not among all students, of uh, not being for all students necessarily, yeah. but what, a lot of what just I'm hearing just, is that yeah. Yeah, is that there's um, a recognition that the way that capitalism has been structured is not working for everyone, right? Um, and something is something needs to essentially, you know, be be fixed. Um, and also that there's a lot of issues within the workplace that haven't have been really sticky. I think when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace um, as well, there is a bit of frustration around something called performative allyship. You know, people people, perhaps putting on a front of being an ally, but not really doing the work to to address things like systemic racism um, and racism that can manifest in our workplace, but also in other aspects of, of the business and business model. Um, so there's definitely a sense of like, how can we think about what does it really take? You know, how can we move beyond talking about these things to actually address these issues? And how can we also think about the ways that different industries impact equity and inclusion. I was actually just participating in a speaker session last night with students. Um, and I'm, i get so much inspiration from them, but that the way they've approached the speaker series is looking at how do different industries, what are they grappling with when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion and the session next week, exactly on tech and looking at, you know, both issues of diversity equity and inclusion within the tech industry itself. And then, issues within tech products, you know, like, like bias and AI and things like that. So, um, you know, these conversations are happening. Business school students are interested in these things. I think there's a, you know, recognition that, that things really need to shift, you know, and the U S has had, you know, a real, real confrontation with itself this last year and still going on. True. Um, and there's just a really big understanding that, that now is the time that we need to really make concrete and actionable changes.
0: And, and, and I'm asking this question because I, I'm, I'm going through the, the challenges of this mission. Now we talk about the positive side and all the great work. What are the main challenges that you face with your team when you address this topic, which is something that we fight for many years, for many decades, and probably according to some study, we need to wait, or we must wait for hundreds of years, which is un- 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 intolerable for me, right? So what are the challenges today?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that at a really high level, um, one of the big challenges is that um, there's been this, this push of, of like I was mentioning before, um, focusing on returns to shareholders, right? They've been the purpose of business. And, um, I think there's a shift from shareholder capitalism to more stakeholder capitalism. and I, I think it's it's a good thing. A challenge is that that we've been, you know really embedded within the shareholder capitalism perspective and and now we're starting to shift a little bit more and and it's just, you know, it's it's um, it's an interesting time for sure. I think another kind of main challenge is that we need to push ourselves beyond thinking about, only diversity and what comes across a lot of times and just like do we have how many numbers do we have you know what's like the the representation numbers of um, particular identities or groups and we really need to be focused on creating more equitable and inclusive outcomes and opportunities and that includes you know even on campus as well that includes at-haws like in, in our work that we do with students uh, you know, not just focusing on diversity among students, but really focusing on the equity and inclusion parts. Um, and that's a challenge, I think, that a lot of businesses more broadly face, too, because there's been there's such a focus on the hiring and the recruitment part, uh, as opposed to, an, you know, we need more of the focus on on what happens when uh, diverse folks get into those environments as well. And I think there's there's been less uh, effort there um, that we really that needs to be really doubled down on. And then I think, you know, making sure that current business leaders are able to access and use resources that help them make this shift. I think we really want, that's a challenge that we face is, making, is making sure that they really are accessible to current business leaders and meeting them where they're at. And I think yeah. people are at different levels. And so it can, that,
0: can be, that can be challenging. But I guess, but I'm not sure. But I guess that because why well, I guess because we in many times during my career, we have a lot of discussion about this because not only we are concerned, but also because it's a reality and we need to work on it. But when you talk with some business leaders, um, probably there's a big work to, to make them understand. And that's why your work is and the work of your team is helping to have to, to propose this framework of understanding and how to understand and why you have to understand this part, but is it something first that it brings some frustration in some cases? Like some some ones without genera- without uh, making generalizations, not everyone, but some ones will not understand even with all the material that you have to con- can you you, you can propose for them, right?
1: Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, that's definitely a challenge and, you know, business leaders, they have a lot going on. There's a lot of different pieces happening. And I think one of the big challenges is how do you convey something in a way that's really clear and concise that they don't necessarily need the, um, you know, technical background for, but also in a way that um, does service to, to the particular topic, like what is enough? information to share with them to know about a topic like bias and AI without being too much um, that will inundate them and perhaps not allow them to, you know, even access those resources. And I think that's a kind of a constant give and pull, you know, is um, how, to, how to reach them uh, in a way that's really accessible uh, and easy to understand, right? True. So we're continuing to ask ourselves, how can we make when it comes to our resources with current bu- business leaders in particular, how can we make these really easy and rewarding to use? What are the different ways to make it easy and rewarding? Uh, we're always asking ourselves that. And, and also we do a lot of piloting um, with business leaders in developing these different tools uh, and prototypes of the different tools. And so using that kind of design thinking approach is really important yeah. as well to make sure that it's grounded in, in their needs and desires.
0: Great, so let's move to another topic which is it Trust Technology and it's one of the main topics in this in this show. So from your great experience, how can we build transparent and trust technology today? Yeah,
1: well from the, the trust piece is so critical, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, when we talk about like businesses working to deploy AI AI at scale, it's necessary to trust the technology. Um, and you know, I was reading about a, uh, I think there was a survey recently by IBM that was finding that 70% of respondents to their survey globally say it's very critically important that they can trust their AI output is fair, safe, and reliable. So, I mean, there's tr- trust is is massive, right? And addressing bias, when it comes to, like, how do we do this and how do we build it? Addressing bias, I think, is a precursor to establishing the trust. So, it's a place that we really need to start. And also being honest about what's possible to address versus what's not possible. I think that's another key piece about building trust. Um, you know, one thing that I hear a lot is, and this myth is that technology can be de-biased or unbiased. You know, it kind of implies that technology can remove bias from technology hundred percent. And I think if we're being really honest about what is and isn't possible, um, you know, it's not, it's not possible to de-bias something hundred percent. We can go, we'll go more into this when we talk about the yeah. bias and AI map and I'll share more about this. Um, but, you know, it's really critical to be honest about this and which is exactly where the transparency piece comes into play too, right? They're so closely linked um, and transparency alongside being able to explain an AI model is just absolutely necessary. Um, both internally, so you have to be able to explain it to yourself and your colleagues and uh, the business leaders, you know, whoever's building the technology, Um, but externally as well, you know, especially if for folks that might be using the technology or, um, you know, they need to understand uh, how it was made and and be able to explain it too. Um, So I think especially when something, you know, goes, when algorithms are produced and perhaps an unattended consequence comes out or an undesirable one, the inevitable question is, you know, how did this happen? And the teams that are developing AI systems really should be able to explain why and how their AI system arrived at a particular decision and be able to reference information and training data and algorithms that that informed it. Um, I think one of the challenges is that a lot of times there are kind of, there might be siloed teams that are working on an AI system yeah. and... AI systems that use machine learning, which was the, the, our focus of our playbook, you know, they're often these kind of models that are considered black box, where it's difficult or even impossible for developers to know why the machine learning system made a particular decision um, or prediction. So it's really important when it comes to transparency to document what goes in to that AI and ML system. So, you know, what's the data that was used, what are the proxies? What are the guiding frameworks for how decisions were made? And that can also help enhance communication between teams internally, um, and you know, including with non-technical staff as well. Uh, and then from an external perspective, like being transparent about the model is is not realistic or um, sensible in some cases. You know, there can be privacy or exploitation concerns, so you don't necessarily want to be totally transparent with the model um, externally. Um, and you know, that also can result in like bad actors that use the AI system or exploit it. Um, but that said, it's still important to have a certain level of transparency and being able to explain, explainability for users uh, and those end targets whose lives are gonna be impacted by these different systems. Um, so we really like things like data sheets for data sets, which can help track information on on how the data set was created, what went into it, um, for example, and yeah, there's another different tools as well to kind of increase the transparency piece, but that's just one of them.
0: My point is, as you said, it's very crucial to be, um, to, to, uh, to prove the part trust and transparent of, uh, of a technology and especially of an AI uh, implementation or a product for many reasons, you, you explain many reasons within what your, uh, your answer, but be, because technology is not only, like it's not only a tool, it's a tool that will be used by people for many purposes. So it depends on the purpose, it depends on the target, it depends on the business, it depends on the user, it depends on a lot of stuff, and it depends on the signs that you put on it, right? So and so people are right now, I think, are more focusing on the people who are building those products. And I think it's, it's not, the, they are not the only responsible because they are executing some part. For sure they are so valuable in the process right because they're bringing this intelligence and creating this machine that's bring a value but at the end of the day it's for business right and the yes. business they are the owner at the end they are the owner of the data they are the owner of the process and they are the owner of the product so mm-hmm. they need to understand and be aware about this part of trust technology and why we talk about trust technology because when we define the vision of AI exponential thinker, we talk about, we know that it's this AI ethics, AI responsible and trustworthy technology. And we say, okay, let's go by the short one. We talk about trust technology, frankly. Why? Because it's not about AI ethics only. It's about many other aspects around. That's why we put trust in front of technology because people are probably trusting some people, long, long lot of people in the world are trusting technology without knowing what's behind the scene and that's why we talk about we are here to empower about trust technology not about technology because there is technology Mm. but there is trust technology and trust technology is like you said such such crucial topics to be sure and to be sure as well that there is not any bias i'm not sure that it exists in the world i spent two decades in this world of ai so i know that you need to be, like you said, honest about if there is some bias, be sure about it and clarify the bias. Okay.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Because it's Mm -hmm. very important for the user or for the business or you know, for the stakeholder, shareholder, whatever to know about it. Otherwise there's no sense, but it's really hard topic when we address it in the business, it's a really hard topic because every time we focus on the people who are building, but the point mm-hmm. is not on building only, it's about all the other ones around, and for sure the society. So I like yeah. what you said about being honest, and, and the fact also that being one-handed person and bias, I, I'm not sure that it exists for mm-hmm. one reason, because we are human. And no woman exactly. who has no bias in his life. Sometimes we have a question, right. probably we probably we have it today with you at the end, And we know when we ask the question, there is a bias. But every time I say, there is a bias in this question, but I'm aware about it. So take it from it, right? So let's. Yeah,
1: and I, yeah, yeah. just one quick thing I think on that. You know, I think that that's so true. And there is a sense too that, um, you know, people, people trust in, I think generally people think that technology is objective and neutral. Right? We think that, oh, the technology gave us something that must be objective and neutral. And we increasingly are realizing that it's not. Right, There is all these examples around how it's not. And I think that that's actually a really important piece of the trust technologies as well, is recognizing that you know, this, this belief that technology is objective and neutral is, is not true. And we need to both acknowledge that ourselves and then to build trust in these technologies, we need to have honesty, like I was mentioning before, around the different kind of components around technology and, and what are the limitations? What, what are the areas that, you know, how is this information informed this particular technology? Um, because the, the blind trust in technology is going away, right? And so now for this next stage of technology, that transparency, I think will be absolutely critical because nobody's under the impression or many people are no longer under the impression that technology is this objective or neutral thing anymore. So to get that trust is, is going to take more transparency and honesty. Um, and ultimately for the business, I mean, you know, it is risky, it is a big risk to not have technology that is built to be able to be trusted and be responsible. Right. Um, you know, from a reputational standpoint, from a, various types of, of um, standpoints. And we go into some of the business implications in our playbook as well um, but this is something that business leaders are going to care about not just because it's the right thing to care about but because
0: this is a big deal for businesses you're right uh, I'm, I'm so excited to uh, to go to the next topic about the playbook that you uh, you work at uh, you work on and name it mitigating bias in artificial intelligence it's, it's a it's a, such amazing work so you led the development of a playbook for business leaders who build um, and use ai to unlock value responsibly and equitably uh, the playb- this playbook translates academic research into practitioner oriented strategy this is what we understood right now so let's have an overview of this relevant material so what you have to say about this material that we found that there is a very uh, genius way that you uh, propose it to 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 help the people to understand and the business owner to understand and my other question, very quick. It, it's, I know that it's for business owners, but what about the other ones? Is it for AI engineers, is it for students also?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the playbook, you know, as you mentioned, it helps business leaders and other folks in the business understand one, why bias exists in AI system. Two, what are the impacts of that bias, both on individuals on society and on the business itself? And then three, what are challenges to address bias? So what are kind of the sticky issues? Uh, And then lastly, we outlined seven different plays that should be put in place to mitigate the bias. And those plays are in three different strategy buckets. The first is around teams, because as you mentioned before, who develops these AI systems matters. It matters who's involved and it matters who's not involved and, and the, te- the culture that is among those teams and organizations that are developing those systems as well. So the first two buckets really focus on diversity among teams that are creating AI systems, uh, as well as a, a culture of responsibility and ethics um, within those teams themselves and the organizations. The second bucket is really focused on the, the AI model. Um, and the AI model, so this is more kind of the technical pieces, but what are the, how does bias come up within, or what are the actions that can be taken to respo- to develop responsible data sets that can help train algorithms and be used in the validation of those algorithms? And then what are also ways to develop responsible algorithms themselves? So looking at kind of proxies and variables and things like that. So it's a little bit more um, technical. So that one's more focused on, folks that are really developing algorithms and AI systems themselves. And then the third bucket is on the corporate governance and leadership. Oh and my this, <laughs> sorry? But, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots there, lots there. Um, but you know, we really wanted to make sure we had included and highlighted these. Because I think when you read about bias and AI and um, different solutions and you know, research online, most of it is on the AI model, right? Most of it is on how do we mitigate that bias from a technical perspective and how do we interpret that bias from a technical perspective? Um, but that's, you know, that's not the, the limit of, of bias, right? Corporate governance and leadership plays a really important role in how these different systems are developed. And so in those particular, uh, in that strategy, we have one around what are the responsible AI governance mechanisms? So things like developing AI ethics leads, mm-hmm. um, and what are the kind of policies that you should have across uh, from a governance perspective? Um, and then we also look at what are ways that you can engage other aspects of the business to support responsible and ethical AI, like CSR teams. There's a role for CSR teams in helping advance this as well. And then the last one is using voice and influence to, um, to advance industry change and regulations for responsible AI, you know we can't ignore that there are regulations that are needed. Um, you know that's really, really important. Uh, and business leaders do have a role to play in helping have those conversations and helping inform um, some aspects of you know those regulations that are also, that are led by government. Um, so it's really designed for business leaders, you know, spanning the C-suite, CEO, board members, ethics leaders, engineers. Um, product managers so business leaders in like a in a larger perspective right not just like business leader in terms of like who is the person that owns this business or the ceo um and then we have you know the particular plays in our playbook those vary based on the audience so like i said the ai model that's going to be really technical so that's more focused on you know folks involved in those technical pieces um but the you know the corporate governance ones; those are very focused on the board, on the C-suite, on you know ethics leads and things like that. Um, so the playbook itself is for a wide variety of folks, and the plays themselves. In fact, we put in the plays who who are the players involved in each of these plays. So each play out, out, outlines that.
0: One of my uh, it it's resonates too much. That's why I'm laughing at the same time. I'm 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 saying I'm seeing my life, my journey. That's why I'm laughing in some parts because there's a <laughs> lot of, uh, you know, it's nice. usually, it's, this is the right word. My, my point now, it's uh, what, the between the three parts, what are the may, the ones that it took more like effort, let's say mm. effort, uh, to mm. design today? Not yeah. to convince, convince, yeah. uh, to design. I think the... Um... The, the, and also maybe I'll
1: start with what one was a little bit easier to, as I, you know, process and think about it, the hardest one. You know, I think like the most obvious thing is thinking about diversity among teams, right? As you mentioned before, AI systems are human creation. So they need to be created by humans that represent different lived experiences and identities. Okay. And we know, we know a lot already about what it takes to create diversity, equity, inclusion among teams. Um, and so that one was a little bit, uh, it was a little easier in a lot of ways. Okay. I think the one that took probably more time, um, one of the challenges, and perhaps this also is a reason it took more time, is that there's so much research that's really coming that's coming out right now and pretty consistently around things like responsible data set development and responsible algorithm development. And so we would be writing these plays and then having to also, oh, oh this new research paper just came out this week on this one, you know, or the, so it was, we were constantly having to add new research and literature as we were going, which made it a little bit challenging. Um, And I think that the, I would say the corporate governance and leadership stuff was actually not as challenging. Um, The play too around the kind of promoting a culture of ethics and responsibility related to AI. I think that one was kind of tricky. And the reason that I say that is because I don't think that it's being done well right now. Um, and it's really around this, this one is really around, like, what does it take to, you know, a lot, and a lot of times companies are very focused on, you know, speed to market. You have to get the product out and, and that matters to the business, right? You want to be the first market. That's really important. Um, but that is fundamentally at odds with ethical considerations a lot of times, which. Require well, let's slow down. Let's think about this. Let's reflect on you know why this might have happened. Um, Those are at odds, and so you you know employees will might flag something that could be an ethical consideration, and they could get dinged for that. You know they could get by by essentially getting in the way of being that you know being first market, going you know being efficient. You know there's just a fundamental tension there. And I think that's what made this play really hard, is because we had to think about, um, and I think it's been, you know, kind of explored le- less of what does it create? Well, how can we create a culture that really prioritizes that ethical consideration, that responsibility, and grapples with that, um, where there's also the very real business constraints and business considerations. Um, and so, you know, I think a big piece here is we need to update how we value performance right like right now in performance reviews there isn't a metric or goal around like ethical consideration you know especially for people that are working on ai systems um what about including something a a performance metric around responsibility and ethics within developing ai systems and developing objective and key results okrs and key performance indicators that actually map to mitigating bias and response, developing responsible and ethical AI. Those aren't really, those aren't really in, you know, exist right now. And I think that's that's super important. Um, so that one, this play was was more challenging because we had to be really, we had to really think, um, how do we deal with this tension, this real tension that exists? And we didn't have a lot of. Um, you know examples to follow. People that are maybe doing all of these different things really well. So, what are what are the creative ways that we can actually tackle this? Uh, so I had a lot of fun with this play,
0: but it was definitely um, definitely more challenging. Uh, I'm just thinking about all the discussion that you you had once you have to face those challenges and, and during the time of design of this part because it's it's quite uh, it's it's really. Um, it's, it, we need to think about the, the belief of the person. I, I think the, we need to take the belief and to try to, to show the people that it's very important to care about the AI ethics and especially the part of trust around technology because if it's not hurting now, it will hurt someday, right? So don't push it away because it will come back. But once it come yeah. back, it will hurt too much. That's why we are very careful about this in AI exponential thinking, and we put it even before AI opportunity. When we designed mm-hmm. the vision, we said empower trust technology, and then AI opportunity. And it was a choice mm-hmm. because if we talk about AI opportunity, we know that almost everything, it's AI opportunity today. But trust technology is something that it's hard to prove, to define, to design, and you know, to, to, to build and to, to, to work on it that's why we put it before because we we expect that the young people need to learn about it especially if they are living in a world of virtual that is with the, yeah. that is amplified with exponential technology without knowing the risk or at least they yeah. know but they don't consider right the risk yeah. that's why it's very important and i appreciate what you said about your work as well with the students in order to highlight all those aspects now, one part yeah. of your of this playbook, it was one part. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot go on all the parts. It was an insightful AI map about AI bias. So uh, it takes uh, big discussions with the editorial board team because we appreciate the details, which is amazing. So, how are AI system biased today? Sure. And. Um, I'll try to keep this as concise
1: and, and clear as possible for sure. Uh, and I think our map does a good job of kind of laying out the different pieces of the puzzle. To start out with, though, how we define bias AI. So I think that's an important consideration. The way that we define bias AI, and we, we often see others kind of skirting around it or define something similarly, but doesn't always, it's not always clear how people are defining it. The way we define it, is that biased AI are AI systems that result in inaccurate and or discriminatory predictions and outputs for certain subsets of the population of the population. So inaccurate or discriminatory predictions and outputs, basically. Um, and so how does this how does this happen? So at a very high level, and we've mentioned this a couple of times now, AI systems are biased because they're human creations right, they often mirror society. And we live in a society with bias and discrimination and systemic racism and sexism, et cetera. Um, And it matters who develops these AI systems and where they're developed as well, because the perspectives and knowledge of the people who develop those AI systems will ultimately be integrated into them. And the values and priorities of managers and of business leaders also impact that organization and the products that are developed because it will inf- influence the people who are developing them. You have speed to market is the priority and that is the, you know, they come from like a Western perspective or something. That those types of things will be integrated into how the AI system is being developed. So a lot of tech companies and labs that are developing these large scale AI systems tend to be mainly white and male. And Even beyond the lack of demographic diversity, in many cases, AI systems aren't designed with relative domain experts or informed by end users. So they're really being designed by a very subset, small subset of the population with particular lived experience and and identities. Um, And that informs how they're created and what goes into their creation process and the biases that they might have can come out. So, more specifically, how does that happen? So, bias can be present in the generation, collection and labeling of data that the algorithm then learns from. So, you know, when algorithms they learn from, they learn from data, right? So, machine machine, learn, machine learning system takes and learns from massive amounts of data. But if those data have bias represented in them, it will learn to be it will learn those same biases. Sure but it's not just about the data. So it also matters how the algorithms are designed and operated as well. Um, so, at a, so I'll go into, a leave just in a, a little bit and share some examples maybe to help bring them to yeah. life. Um, so with data in particular, so we think, we think of data as being this very objective thing, right? Data almost equals fact or truth, but that's, that's a myth. Um, Data incorporates a lot of social inequities and cultural prejudices. A lot of data is generated just by our day-to-day activities and collected through different types of platforms, technologies, etc. One simple way to think about how data might be inaccurate here is there's a huge digital gender gap, right? So there's that, which means that there are less women than men who access internet, who have access to smartphones, mobile phones, etc. So there's less data being collected globally from that particular group. So that's one example. Um, and there's other data gaps as well. Um, for example, in the U.S. with COVID-19, um, we there was um, a lot of undocumented immigrants who were not getting tested because they were fear of, for fear of deportation. Oh. So there was just missing data gaps on certain groups and in certain communities that was painting an inaccurate picture of that reality, right? So that, that was not necessarily accurate. And then also humans, humans are influenced data as well. Humans decide what's collected, what goes into data sets, et cetera. And I think a really good way to recognize this is thinking about healthcare. There's so many examples in healthcare. You know, men's bodies have always been the standard for medical testing and women are missing from medical trials. Um, their female bodies are kind of deemed as too complex, too variable, um, you know. And in and thinking about like the automotive industry as well, um, the te- car crash and test dummies have been made on the male body, and it wasn't until 2011 that those started being updated. And even then, they were just putting female crasusummies in the in the passenger side seat. You know, so the types of, of data that's being collected isn't necessarily a- objective as well. The human yeah. influence goes into that. Um, and data that's used by machines that's labeled is also subjective. in many times there was a you know great. Uh, research that was done um, by some folks looking at large-scale kind of image data sets and how some of those images were labeled very subjective things that then was learned from from AI systems. So they labeled images like orphan and mistress, which are, those are not objective, you know, things that you can just look at a picture and, and call out. Um, so there's different ways that data can be um, biased. And then a really a very basic one that you find that you find often cited in reference within the uh, technology space is that data sets can be over under representative of certain identities. Um, this is a big issue within facial recognition technology too, so you know the a lot of research and joy bualam Bualamwini. Uh, and her colleagues have highlighted higher error rates for black women versus white men within facial recognition. And a big reason of that is because the data sets are mostly including of white men. Um, and I think that's a big, a lot of folks focus on that over underrepresentation, representation, but there's a lot of other ways that data sets can be biased too. Um, Relate to the algorithms, so the purpose of the algorithm you know al- algorithms make deci- make decisions based on the data that they're fed the human inputs required to define what the purpose of the ai model is and what the constraints are that it operates under and also what are the inputs that it should consider when it makes patterns and draws conclusions so there's a lot of decisions that can go into that where bias can could come yeah. into play um, so what data sets are going to be used for example or what proxies and variables are gonna be used. One example that I think is really telling here is that there was this online tech platform, a hiring platform that is called Guild, what enables employers to use social data in addition to other resources like resumes, um, but to rank candidates based on their social capital. And social data, was a proxy that refers to how integral a programmer is to the digital community. And it draws from time they spent sharing and developing code on platforms like GitHub. But this selection ignores key societal contexts, which is that there's higher expectations around unpaid care, which puts more time burdens on women so they have less time to chat online. It also ignores how women might assume male identities because there's a lot of sexist tones on platforms like GitHub or gender specific safety concerns like targeted harassment and trolling and other forms of bias. Um, so the way that that algorithm, you know, was developed and the types of data sets that it used, um, you could see how, you know, that, that could result in, in bias in terms of who it deemed as being the best hire for a, for a particular position or who had the best you know, social capital, um, even choosing to value social capital based on time spent online, you know, that, that sort of um, decision that went into that, that algorithm is, is an important consideration too, right? That, you know, I doubt there were very many women developers who were working on that. And unfortunately, theme.
0: and unfortunately, I'm, I'm just directing in a live and unfortunately, for, from this example, it doesn't mean that you are hiring the best candidate. It doesn't mean that you are spending exactly. hours and hours on you know uh, those platforms and and de- pretending developing algorithms. But it's true, uh, you know, uh, like it's really superficial uh, analy- analysis of the case because there is not. Uh, and again, I, I think hearing process is something that. Uh, there's a lot of bias in it and it's, yes. it's much more about pretension than reality and mm-hmm. unfortunately we reproduce the same thing because we are focusing on pretension and not on reality that's why we are yeah. not taking the best talent and we are reproducing the same and it's very hard when you it comes to ai ethics because the people who are coming just to do their task are completely different from the people who are coming to b- believe on the progress and build the progress of the company. And this is very important because the second one will focus on what makes sense for the user, for the stakeholder, whatever. But the first one will just focus on performing, on just developing the product. And there's a big Mm -hmm. difference between both of them. There's a lot of aspects because we we work on some project where we need to focus on diversity to be sure Mm -hmm. that the products will be, let's say fair enough, not one percent person, but at least we care about the, those aspects, right? So we, we have a checklist and we need to work on it, right? So in some cases, when you have only male uh, who are uh, tra- working on the part of pres- like this, defining the algorithms, for them, there is no problem of diversity and there is no problem of equity. Everything is fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. right. And you guys know, say, okay, <laughs> but the product is especially for women, for helping them. So how we need women who are working to give their perspective, to raise their voices, to to highlight the part that probably we missed in the data or whatever, right? And we try to to bring something that makes sense. And in many cases, it shocked me at the beginning, and then I said, okay, we need to bring more women around the table because even they don't understand everything on the algorithmic part, but at least they are here to raise their voices and give their perspective, to shape the product in the say in, in, in order to have the sense. Otherwise, it's a product defined by male for women. There is no sense. Unfortunately, yeah. there is no sense. Because they are okay. not and it's not against them again. Because it's like me if you come and you told me you have a product only for male. For sure, I will bring some bias because maybe some part I cannot understand if no one explained to me, right? But if people will explain to me, I will understand, right? But this is part of explaining. It's more about being exponential, having this exponential mindset about thinking about other things and not thinking only about what we demand and what we have to do. And we need those okay. those people, and you highlight many aspects about bias, and this map is quite rich with with details uh, and I, and i think that it will help many people's not only on business but also uh, in other aspects in the company uh, like humorous source communication marketing and we know that everywhere there is some place for bias unfortunately because it's, yeah. it's just the corporate the corporate world is just a copy of society there's no right. difference it yeah, right, the right. Purpose of business, but it's a society. People are here to work,
1: right? Totally, and that's why I think that sometimes I get, a, I get a little, you know, when people talk about how they can unbias or debias, you know, the sense that like technology can solve all of our problems. But it's, like you said, you know, the business world reflects a lot of those existing biases and and things that exist. Like there, it's part of the world. You know, it has those same biases and inequities, and there's this there's this desire to think, this goes to what we'll talk about later with the debate, but there's this, this desire to think that technology can save us and be the savior without recognizing that we need to save ourselves. We need to incorporate the different perspectives and voices and lived experiences into how we're tackling these issues and how we're developing AI systems and solving problems. Um, and it's not you know, the technology that will be our savior, it's really ourselves, but Ensuring that we have that diversity of of perspectives, lived experiences, identities, etc., and the, you know the gender piece is so critical there. It brings um, it, yeah yeah yeah. I was it, I was gonna say yeah. sorry before going to the next question. Because there's one third piece around the way that bias can come into play, and that is around how AI systems are used. So how we describe how we defined AI systems or biased AI systems before is that uh, you know they can result in inaccurate or discriminatory outputs and or uh, and predictions for groups right but how they're used can result in discriminatory outcomes as well um so you know a lot of times ai systems will be developed in one particular context and then used for a different population that it wasn't developed for and that could make it inaccurate um that happens in policing so like a lot of the policing systems have had this issue and then it can also because it will, it also won't capture kind of changing societal knowledge or population values um so another an example here is that google translate was used by um the i the ice in the us what does immigration uh enforcement mm-hmm. and it was used to translate social media posts of refugees and it had huge very high inaccuracies related to slang and dialect so it was actually not being accurate in what it was predicting or how it was being used to then uh, result in these outcomes for these different refugees in that particular use setting. So it matters how it's being used and where it's being used as well that can result in these discriminatory outcomes or inaccurate outcomes.
0: And it's very complex because it's much more about the context behind, I mean, behind the algorithm we define context and we cannot reach all or define all the possible contexts. that's why sometimes you uh, people like when you use this product in some contexts you are it, it's it's just enough but if you use it in another context a uh, combined context not only one combined context it will not be trust that's and right. it, it's very hard task i think to to you know to be to be very clear about this part and it brings me to another, another question. So we are really curious to know what are your thoughts about emotional robots and machines and how uh, can we protect our people against any type of manipulation? And now we put the word manipulation.
1: Mm. I think this is a really interesting question and I will caveat my response by saying this is not my area of expertise. And so this is really just more of my personal perspective um, and opinion. Now, um, but I think that with robots, you know, one thing that when I think about robots um, in particular, one thing that I am concerned about and comes to mind for me is the ways that they can be gendered or sexualized and perpetuate really harmful biases and stereotypes. Um, and, you know, we didn't delve into this particular aspect in the playbook, but I uh, UNESCO has done a great report that delves more into this in particular. But, you know, using, like, female voices within robots to convey certain types of emotions or to respond in certain ways, that really perpetuates certain gendered norms and biases and expectations and and can be very harmful. Um, you know, uh, those robots have been, you know, they often are kind of feminized. So as these more um, feminine, like, we'll take care of you, but we're, uh, you know, more demure or... Like, the, the personality that's kind of built into them sometimes is, is really problematic. And so I think, you know, just from that perspective, that's a really important piece, piece to think about. And how can we make these, you know, take out this, these sort of gendered acts, aspects? I think that's a big part of protection as well um, and making sure we don't perpetuate these really harmful biases and stereotypes.
0: AI, we, we want to go more in the in, uh, and come back to this, unfortunately, 2020, the time of pandemic. So in, in one of the articles uh, in the Standard Social Innovation Review, you you, you could write an article uh, about the problem with COVID-19 artificial intelligence solutions and how to fix them. So let's dig uh, deeply in some topics. The first one is... 2020, 2020 was a hard time, as I said, of pandemic uh, for all the world. And AI, in many cases, was such a great solution. But as you mentioned it in the article, it was not the case all the time. So, what do you mean by that?
1: Sure. So, you know, as we've talked about, AI systems are rife with biases. And AI systems that are responding to COVID are not immune from those biases. So when it comes to the data, there, um, especially early on, and when we wrote this article in particular, you know, there was a lack of data that was disaggregated by different populations. So lack of sex disaggregated data, uh, race and ethnic disaggregated data, um, and some data wasn't even being captured. I think I mentioned before, undocumented immigrants, uh, transgender individual data was also not being captured correctly or, or not being captured at all in, in many contexts. Um, and when it comes to, so if you're, you know, if you're not collecting data that is representative, is inclusive, uh, you, know, you already have an opportunity for bias to come into play there. And now when it comes to the particular types of AI systems that have been developed or that are being developed, we're seeing AI systems being developed for medical response. So, you know, clearly we need all the help we can get right now and you know in los angeles there's a hospital that earlier this week was at 320 percent capacity i mean you know it's 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 bad right it's, it's a very scary time um and doctors and medical professionals you need know, all the help they can get in and dealing with this um so we're seeing some ai systems that come up that and kind of inform that medical response so ones that can help identify might somebody need to, be, to go to the ICU, predict if the person might need to go to the ICU or might need a ventilator or other types of um, support. Um, but you know, algorithms within AI systems um, for medical response have resulted in discrimination in the past, and we need to be really careful about this. So within the US context, for example, there is a widespread algorithm from uh, Optum Mm -hmm. that was found to be discriminatory against black people. And essentially it used healthcare spending as a proxy to measure need. So within the algorithm itself, it said healthcare spending was a proxy for how much healthcare someone would need. But it didn't account for discrimination and lack of access and the history of white supremacy and the history of racial discrimination and justice in our country which has led to lower spending on healthcare by black Americans, where black Americans have not been, had the same access necessarily to, to medical support or been discriminated within the medical system. Um, so it, result, it had worse results. It, it essentially said that black Americans who were equally sick as white patients, it resulted in them getting half the care of those white patients. So that's pretty problematic. Yeah. And now when it comes to COVID, we know that there are certain pre existing conditions that can increase risk from COVID, and, and they're also more prevalent in certain populations. Again, linked to systemic racism. Um, so, for example, Black Americans suffer more from diabetes and asthma than white Americans. And that has the, you know, the history of structural racism in our country. I don't need to go into depth, but that's what it's tied into. Um, and it leads to disparities in health outcomes. If an algorithm used pre-existing conditions and doesn't take race into account it could inadvertently learn to deem more likely to die individuals from certain groups that have those pre-existing conditions and so if somebody's making a decision around i only have a few resources you know a couple of ventilators lesser, icu beds who there could it could come up in a point around and this you know happened in italy before around who's going to be most likely to survive and who should get these resources so there is a very, I'm very nervous about those types of AI systems that could be used and deployed. Um, you know, it comes down to like how the tool might inform action in those particular settings. So again, how it's used really matters. Um, and you know, don't get me wrong, these tools can clearly be incredibly helpful to determine how to allocate these life-saving resources to those that need them and even prepare hospitals. But in cases where people are de- deciding you know, who gets these the last few precious life saving resources? How do we determine, you know, who might be most likely to survive? That that really makes me nervous. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that that we that we need to, to be aware of. So that's kind of something that we talked about. But beyond this, you know, AI systems for tracking and social control using facial recognition can also be problematic. So, you know, uh, uh, in China, there's some systems that use facial recognition for kind of tracking COVID, social control, et cetera. Um, but these could extend beyond the life of the pandemic and contribute to over surveillance and over policing of certain communities, particularly marginalized communities that already have a history of being over surveilled and over policed. Um, and, you know, that's something like we Muslims in China, for example, that's something that's a real concern in, in that area. Um, and yeah, so I think that those are some <laughs> important considerations to We go more in depth into the article as well, but, um, and there's, there's solutions, you know, I think everybody has a role to play in the article. We talked about different solutions that both nonprofit and business leaders can do, you know, part of it is asking the questions and thinking through the different ways that bias can come into play. You know, nonprofits can help by filling some of these data gaps that exist. We've seen some really great examples here in the Bay area. Around um, nonprofits that worked with uh, to help test and provide support and medical resources to um, communities that had more undocumented immigrants, for example. So you know there is a lot of there are different solutions here um, that come from both nonprofit and business leader perspectives.
0: I, I want to just uh, interact um, about the example that you give, and it's very relevant about health and the risk that can exist. Unfortunately, in some cases, like you said, about diabetes, whatever, uh, in, the, in this case. But my point is, when, you work, when we work on AI, uh, generally, if we focus only on data, we are not uh, in the right spot. The idea is to focus on data as a material, but the main point is to focus on expertise, the people who are today handling this uh, functional area and knowing how to do it. And it's very important to include them in the process of building the product. But till now, I think everyone is including them. But my point is not to include them. The point is to uh, to try to think, to, to have them really committed to transfer a mm-hmm. part of knowledge or at least to be really convinced that this result is very important to me to help me do this work. If they are not really convinced, they will miss a lot of details, voluntary or involuntary. And I saw a lot of examples in my career. And sometimes it's completely involuntary, right? Because, you know, it's it's a a big functional area and a lot of expertise. So some people don't focus. So that's why it's very Mm. important to be curious, but being convinced that the result Mm. is very important to us. I mean, to them. Why? Because if they are, they will care about those details that you mentioned. And they will say, okay, But in this case, for instance, for those people, generally, uh, we we care about this detail and we care about this, but maybe you didn't focus on in the data, but the data, uh, you know, it represents Mm -hmm. something. So let's go Mm -hmm. in another data set and and focus on it in order to do this. But if they are not really convinced for any Mm -hmm. reason, maybe they are, you know, it's busy work and everything, or they are involved at just X, X person and their time, right? And they have to do their work as well, like everyone. So for sure, those details we miss those details, and those details are very important. That's why when I work in AI and especially smart new product that we don't know the business area or the you know the functional area, I like going and seeing and staying with the people. It's very important without being intrusive to care about their expertise. It's very important because those people Definitely. are have a lot of assets, but it's very hard to, you know, it's like your expertise of 30 years, and I'm asking you to give me some details. It's very hard for them as well, you know, to focus on some part. So that's why it's very important to combine many methods in order to be the more careful about those details that you mentioned a lot of example that it's unfortunately can be biased or can have a risk or, you know, can bring a threat or whatever. So it's very important. Unfortunately, the people who are working on AI uh, only to produce the results, maybe some of them are not caring about all the process. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's it's demand as a resource, right? And you know, in business, you need to care about resource as well. So you have not a long time life in order to produce the product. That's why it's very important, as you said, to engage the business owners, the stakeholders, to understand that it's it's really um, uh, it's it's a big process and it's a lot of steps and you need it to care about. I like what you said about this. Now, now you talk about yeah. technology and if it's mm. safe or not, uh, it, if it will save us or not. In one of mm. in, in the recent debate by the New York Times, uh, you was involved in and invited uh, as as a speaker uh, to be uh, to to argument. Right, and you take I, I don't know if you take it voluntary or not, but that's why I have the question just following <laughs> uh, it it was name it, technology will not save us uh, or maybe will save us, so today, I would like to dive deeply really on your thought behind your argument during the debate because you choose it at the time or not to be against so yeah. what was your thought at that time
1: <laughs> sure, so you know I be on the against side, Um, and partly because I like to, you know, be the the challenger in some ways, like I want to provoke the thoughts, right, and provoke the the learning, um, and just reflection from folks, Um, but I also do think that the very idea that technology will save us, will be our savior, is problematic. And because it takes the focus away from humans. And remember humans are the ones who create the technologies anyways, right? Like, So I think focusing on technology as being the savior in itself, the very idea that technology will save us can actually be incredibly harmful because then it overlooks one, the fact that it's humans who will save us ultimately, that we need to save ourselves and two, That that technology is not this neutral, objective tool, and it also can be used politically. So, let me just delve into this a little bit more. Uh, You know, I think that in this last year, in particular, you know, we've seen systemic racism uh, rear its ugly head. You know, and and more so than even in the past. um, And with the impacts of COVID on Black and Brown communities, with you know everything that's been happening in the U.S. then the resurgence of Black Black Lives Matter movement to really respond to this. We've seen massive wildfires in California, you know, the apocalyptic skies, like we've seen COVID bringing hospitals to to the brink um, around the world. And I think, you know, technology is an attractive solution, right? There's a lot of scary things that are happening right now. Um, But... By thinking that technology will solve our issue, it ignores that technology itself is not neutral and it's not possible to have data that's free from bias or have you know, tech systems like AI that we've been talking about that are de-biased. And also, I think this is something that I wanted to make a point clearly during the debate too is that you know, we've had the technology to combat the climate crisis for decades but the climate crisis is worsening every year. And this is linked to the fact the political will isn't there. So again, it's not that the technology won't save us. We've had technology that can help us and combat these issues. We just haven't been using it effectively, right? So there's also a political will aspect. Um, and I think you know there's a focus on expanding access to mobile phones, internet, et cetera, which is super important. Um, you know, digital inclusion is really critical and important. And I, you know, when I was at UN Women, I was focused on digital inclusion. Um, But what about privacy considerations? You know, what about the various forms of of technology facilitated gender-based violence? Um, You know, I think that by by kind of blindly saying technology is the answer, we don't take the time to think about these critical questions that we need to. Um, And we're seeing how, you know, social media rates have been going up and alongside that have been suicide rates for teenage girls, right? So, I mean, this is these are really important questions and really important considerations. Um, and then of course, can't ignore the impact of social media on what's been happening in the US with our democracy and the riots at the Capitol um, and the, the role of social media in, in contributing to that. Um, so you know, I think my my main points really are that it matters how technology is being. You know, technology is a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. True. Sure. And it's something that is created by humans. And it also matters that you know it's it's controlled by political will as well, right? Which is humans again. Humans. It comes back to humans. And so I think really what will save the world is. Humanity coming together, and you know what you were mentioning before is around centering the voices of women and girls, and those that are also, are also marginalized. Uh, you know, not just not just women and girls, but women and girls have been historically excluded from tech, um, and really radically rethink how we're designing, distributing, and managing ICTs and, and AI systems and other tech. Um, you know, and I, I loved your point around how do we bring in this kind of like different perspectives as well and, and within into technology or into technology expertise and domains, but then also working with community members to inform um, their thoughts and, and experiences too. And then we need investment in non-technology solutions. Um, you know, tech, so those, those are kind of the main points I was making. You know, I think that technology is undoubtedly super important and really critical Um, But at the end of the day, it's a tool created by us that we determine how it's used and we are responsible for saving ourselves.
0: And it's very important. I uh, I wanna highlight again what you said that it's very important to care about that technology. It's a tool. And every time I say it's a powerful tool, right? It's really a powerful tool that can amplify the good side on us or the bad side on us. Now the question is where is the part that we want to amplify? And unfortunately, the social media, at least the social media, because we we have a lot of examples and the people are are seeing the things, right? The social media are tracing the bad side of human and not the right side, which is the bright side that we have all, right? So the question is, if we continue in this process, we will have, unfortunately, a really bad society. But if we use this powerful exponential technology to highlight and show the bright side and amplify it, for sure we can end up in a very beautiful society, right? With technology yeah, that helps us do many beautiful things and we, we have more time for relationships, right? For, for yeah. helping each other and really the idea. That's why for me, I, I'm, I'm more the ones who are thinking that technology can help us to save ourselves but it's our choice it's our totally. choice to, to highlight and amplify amplify by those technologies the bright side that we have inside of us but the, yeah. again it's a choice of civilization and i think we discussed this with Kay uh, first Butterfield in one of our episodes that the, per- the problem is more about civilization it's not mm-hmm. about technology when we mm-hmm. are in, in country where there is a great civilization, and I think there is not that much number of countries like this. The technology will amplify the bright part, right? And they will help them. And we saw a lot of examples in this pandemic. With other places, they need to make other choices, I think, and use this technology in the right way. And, and, and now we, I will stop because we have questions from the audience. And so we have a a part named Chair the Stage and Open the Debate. It's something very very innovative in our podcast. So we open the debate and we invite audience, ask you questions. The first question is coming from Natalia. She has uh, 38 years from Portugal. I'm Natalia from Portugal, mechanical engineer in a factory. I'm wondering about the future of work and whether my kids will have a decent job since almost everything will be done by machines and maybe intelligent machines. From your perspective, are you preparing, uh, are we preparing ourselves and our young kids to a future of prosperity? Hmm. Uh,
1: this is a, a million dollar question for sure. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, you know, I think, that there's a lot of kind of different types of information around what will happen, you know, our, as many jobs are going to be lost, be created, and, you know, there's a general sentiment that, that yes, a lot of jobs will be lost, but a lot of jobs will be created as well. Um, and I, I don't think that we're doing enough to prepare people for the future of work currently, you know, especially... A lot of the jobs that are really more vulnerable to automation are the jobs that are disproportionately filled by people from marginalized communities right so are those that are more routine type of tasks that can be automated and so and the jobs that are going to be created are going to require higher skills and education so how are we preparing people that have you know traditionally had these more routine less lower education level uh type of job to enter into jobs that require higher skills and education And really enable greater opportunities for everyone to access those jobs. I think the second piece that's relevant to everyone is fostering more of a growth mindset, you know, especially for kids like jobs will be changing, careers will change, um, but having a growth mindset and perhaps more building into more education systems, even into like traditional education system, elementary school, et cetera, more understanding around how to build this growth mindset. I think that will be a really important piece to prepare our kids as well.
0: Great. The the second question is coming uh, from Elias, he has 16 years old, from Boston, and he asked, the AI market is evaluated by more than 10 trillion of dollars for 2030. I'm a student and expect to study law. From my study, my future job will be automated in some way, and I'm thinking if I should candidate for tech study or not. Frankly, it's not my dream. What are your advices?
1: Love this question.
0: Uh,
1: I will say there are going to be lots of different types of jobs. I think there's definitely a, you know, push for more STEM education, for more people working in tech, et cetera. But think about the fact that there is a lot that needs to be sorted out related to regulations and laws for technology. Um, that is a huge area of growth. You know, how do we, what are the, the laws that need to go into place? How should they be regulated? You know, what are lawyers that can help deal with those kinds of issues? Um, and the other thing is you don't need to be a tech expert to be prepared for the future. I think a big piece that we talk about in our playbook and that we're seeing more and more in companies is recognizing that they need expertise in areas like social sciences and philosophy and governance, et cetera especially on these different tools that are being developed or, and doctors, you know, these different tools that are being developed for different areas of our society need those different perspectives and expertise. We don't want a society where everyone only studies STEM. That would be a dull and problematic <laughs> society. So I think, I think if, if you don't want to go into tech studies, then you don't need to go into tech studies. And there are different ways that you can, that you can think about your career and, and it overlaps with tech if you so choose.
0: Now the common qu- questions, uh, we come back to the topics of, of this uh, 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 discussions and it will be a very quick one because we are curious to learn more about your vision about the sustainable future and also your advices as a mentor. So how looks the future of work from your perspective?
1: Mm. Um, the future of work from my perspective, you know, I think that we're already seeing really big shifts with the future of work right now. It's already happening. You know, COVID has brought that about more rapidly. We're working from home. Uh, You know, we're interacting more on these digital kind of interfaces. Um, I think from a social perspective as well, we need to really think about, um, such as a gender perspective, how do we support kind of caretaking as well? You know, now that we are more working from home, we're already seeing massive implications in terms of women in particular having to leave their jobs because of caretaking needs. Um, so future of work wise, the more that we're working remotely and digitally, we need to think about these other aspects like caretaking as well. Um, other pieces around the future of work, I mean, I think that the um, you know automation is coming and COVID is accelerating aspects of automation. And so you know that's another piece to consider. I think there's a lot that needs to be sorted out around kind of regulations and support for workers that, whose jobs might become automated. Um, for the most part, a lot of our jobs will just have little piece, or you know, many of our jobs will just have little pieces be automated. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different considerations to it, but when, when I think about the future of work, I'm definitely concerned around certain types of jobs that will be automated that are for more marginalized communities and how to make sure that they have access to resources, social protections, educational opportunities, et cetera, to be able to access the newer jobs that will be created.
0: And now the second question, how looks the future of education? Mm. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think that is a, a really good question and one that we that I've been asking a lot, being at Haas and being at a business school. Um, I think that and I am a president of a board of an organization called Visionaria Network, which does a lot of work with youth, uh, particularly in, in Latin America and Peru in particular, um, and we do a lot of work with educational institutions around growth mindset and design thinking and things like that, which has gotten a lot of pickup among um, the Peruvian um, education system. And I think that there's a lot that, that can be done at the, you know, throughout around the growth mindset piece that I mentioned before. I think within education, like at a university level, we need greater emphasis uh, and understanding around ethics and responsibility and things like trust that aren't just right now, they're very much like a separate course you know, something that's kind of on the side, but it really needs to be integrated, especially into um, disciplines like data science and engineering, uh, you know, core courses that talk about AI and talk about data should have these things built in. And within business schools as well, data and data analytics course and other courses around AI should have these kinds of considerations built in, which is exactly why we're starting to develop um, case studies that can be integrated into these courses that can start to touch on some of these topics.
0: Great. So it's very easy to to make the transition to the second topic, which is takeaway as a mentor. Um, I I will skip the first one because it's more general one. It took it talk more about flexibility, adaptability, and you you give us a lot of advices, and you talk about growth mindset and design thinking, which is very important as skills as well in order to 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 be in the right spot for the for the coming decades. Uh, now I want to focus on women since it's something that uh, you work, uh, um, you work on it for, for for a decade at least. So, how can we encourage more women and girls working in the p- space of technology? And here there is a the bias with the high sense of of care and emotional intelligence. From your perspective, do you think women can play the biggest the biggest role in the space of AI ethics?
1: I think women can play big roles everywhere, for sure, and. I And I will say that um, I think when it comes to how we encourage more women and girls working in the space of technology, there are issues that are linked to uh, how when girls and boys are young, like what types of things girls are told to be good at and our courage to go into, and there's some gendered, you know, perceptions around pushing girls into arts um, you know, in sciences versus pushing boys more into you know things like technology. So there needs to be work done, even at that, you know, with with youth and our own perceptions. Even parents can think about how they're perhaps perpetuating gendered roles and stereotypes among their among their kids. Um, and so there's a lot of different kind of constraints as well. And then within workplaces, workplaces have a lot of a lot that they need to do to. To create more equitable and inclusive environments that encourage and foster uh, the growth of women and girls, uh, or women in those particular positions, and can enable women to become role models and encourage more women to go in those sectors, we actually wrote a play that's all about this. It's our very first play, play number one, which is how do we create more diversity, or how do we enhance diversity? And there's there's a focus on gender and what are the different kind of barriers to doing so, and the different um, actions that can be taken among business leaders and organizations, um, but considerations for society as well. So those are a couple, but if you're interested in that topic, I encourage readers to check out or listeners to check out that first play to, to look at the, it's a pretty brief feeling, two or three pages, very concise. Um, so can learn more
0: there. Great. So as we approach the end of this, uh, uh, authentic discussions, um, as, as, for, for your experience as more than a decade in many, many topics, many parts around equity, leadership um, and AI ethics as well. Uh, we believe that this discussion will bring a lot of insight for our young people, but also for, for the business owners who, with, with who we share this material. So we are curious to learn some other things more about you now. C- can you share with us your biggest achievement so far? And what's
1: your next dream uh, that you would love to achieve one day? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good, good question. My biggest achievement so far, um, you know, one I, I've always been really in, uh, proud of is you know, launching that, that nonprofit with my, co- with my, my co-founders in uh, Peru that really focuses on, on youth, especially girls as being innovators in their communities. And really working with those communities and working with my partners, um, improving partners there is something that I feel so proud and accomplished for, you know, really getting that, seeing those impacts and seeing what that means really means a lot. Um, My work with UN Women was really inspiring as well. We developed a uh, report around um, women's economic empowerment, and that was uh, there was a day where my picture along with other folks on the high-level panel for women's economic empowerment was in Times Square in New York. And oh my, my friend sent me a, yeah, my friend sent me a photo of that. And I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> and I think I was standing, you know, there's like the president of Costa Rica was in the picture. It was just like a mind blowing, very surreal kind of moment, you know? Um, and I think in terms of the next dream, I mean, I... I'm so fascinated by the topic of artificial intelligence and thinking about gender equity and and, uh, gender bias as well in these technologies. And kind of what you were saying before, how do we truly develop AI systems that center the voices and needs of women and girls? Um, And so I really want to, my next dream is to dig deeper into this, dig deeper into creating ML machine learning systems that authentically and truly integrate their voices. So that's where I would like to go, building out more of that, those technical skills as well. Um, So that's some things, but, you know, I think, you know, kind of going back to how do we encourage more women and girls working in the space of technologies, I think, you know, for for girls that are listening to this podcast is recognizing that, you know, there are so many opportunities here for you uh, and technology is a space for everyone. And not only is it a space for everyone, but we need more women and girls working in this space. and the types of impacts it can have in our society uh, and for ourselves is really inspiring. And I hope that you know, folks might consider that. But ultimately, it's about following your dreams and, and own inspirations too, and um, you know, whatever that might be, tech or otherwise. Thank
0: you very much, Geneviève, to be with us. Uh, It was a great pleasure to me to listen to you in these great discussions. Um, I I would love to have these pictures from Times Square if you can share it with us. (laughs) We would be so uh, happy to share it as well. We love those recognitions, you know, because it's very important to highlight the recognitions that have uh, uh, these women who are thriving to 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 bring the equity in the society and, and this is why we are always happy to share those materials. Thank you very much for being with me and with us today, John Deere.
1: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Take care. Bye.
0: With more than 50,000 young people empowered in time of pandemic and uncertainty. We are grateful to our remarkable guests with exponential experiences and from great organizations such as Amazon, World Economic Forum, Harvard, Google, Berkeley, and more. Thank you to our great audience and keep tuned for this new episode in the unique AI channel of trust by AI Exponential Thinker.